want to run for it. Yeah. <laughs> you grab the piano. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I've yeah, just been quite interested in that idea of what it is that takes somebody to the next level, what it is that just defines or distinguishes somebody as, as a genius, I guess. And the tragic thing of, of falling slightly short and, and I mean, it's also about the different decisions that one makes in order to pursue something that one truly loves, I guess. Um, <laughs> buzzing, really annoying. Oh, really? That's my old phone, exactly that one. I just, I just bought it slightly in an emergency and I just realised it doesn't do anything. <laughs> it doesn't even have a camera, that one. Was the idea of the genius something that, that you were aware of and that maybe taunted you? I mean, were there moments uh, that you wanted to be a genius, thought you oh, were yeah. a genius? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And it's very much a taunting thing because, you know, you know, the ego is really malleable and when you're playing really well and, you know, maybe you're in the zone and you, you, you kind of occupy a kind of genius. You know, there is mm. a certain moment where it feels limitless and wonderful and, and, yeah, you know, there's always that sense of, yes, I was born for this, this is what I meant to do. Mm. And, you know, and that's it's a hugely seductive idea, you know, wonderful, especially for a person who was at that time quite, I was quite shy and, um, you know, it's this wonderful way of understanding the world and, you know, it very much feels like the rest of the world kind of, coheres around that idea and then suddenly you know is bathed in the kind of significance of that idea which is, is one you know it's, it's intoxicating entirely but yes that, that taunting that thing you know and this was very much my dialogue with music often is oh I'm you know I'm drawn to it I'm, I'm, I'm very it's, it's natural and then it's wonderful and then but no I'm not I'm not I can't understand myself in that way I, you know I'm not a natural so yeah it's, it's, it's really it was it was kind of a a series of ideas, I guess, that it felt very much of the time in which I was thinking about music. And I think it was general, you know, it was sort of, you know, at university level, a lot of pe- people sort of agonising with these ideas of kind of natural musician, you know, musician or and sort of struggling with this idea of identity and vocation and how, was there how to reconcile it. a sense of re- almost relief as well as perhaps disappointment that to discover you're not a genius. I mean, one of the advantages of being a genius is, 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 the, is the wonder of, of performance and mm. of, of achievement. But there is a danger that if that's the only way that life makes sense. Yeah. Um, and we do, and it's, it's a cliche of the genius Mostly that the only... Troubled. But, but the, it's, the rest of the world can't live up to these supreme moments that you, that you have, in, you know, whether you're Glenn Gould or... Yeah, yeah. Um, or John Bon Jovi, I know, feels <laughs> strongly. But, but I, mean, I should probably say that I never actually thought I was a genius. Okay. I sort of, <laughs> you know, for the record. You know, I think, you know, there's a sort of a, a sense in which you kind of touch something outside of yourself and that is sort of that, that sort of wonderful transcending feeling. But no, definitely, I think there was a sense of relief in, in stepping away from that world and, you know, realising that there were different ways in which I could define myself. It took a while, but, you know sort of drawing on different experiences and I think that is sort of where the idea as well of the sort of the extremism of the novel comes from because there is that sense as you say with with genius that it is all-consuming and it does exclude a lot of reality you know you know Glenn Gould is a good example of uh, somebody who outside of music is, is you know somebody who found life 
difficult. I didn't want to exclude things, you know, that I think um, the, the wonderful thing about writing is you don't, it doesn't seem, you know, of course there are examples of, of uh, prodigies in literature. I think I'm going to be meeting one on, on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Helena Coggan, who's 15 years old and has just published her first novel. Yeah. But it's a, it's a far more organic thing. There are so many different varieties of literary talent. It just seems to let in and to include so much of reality. And I think mm. that, for me, is what I wanted and um, was, you know, it was a relief to sort of see that you didn't have to have this sort of burning arc of fire, which, you know, you followed and, and sort of gave up everything and committed everything. You know, it was, it was possible to have, you know, as it is, this sort of novel kind of argues for mess and failure and um, you know different ways of seeing those things and rewriting your own narrative in that way. Can we talk about the the novel? Can you trace an, an origin where you decided to, to take some of these these feelings and these these ideas about music and, t- and turn it into in, into a narrative? It's hard to pinpoint. Like, I don't think I actually consciously set out to make real these these ideas mm. in literature. I think they sort of came up in spite of me in a way. <laughs> <laughs> that said, you know, like I, I had the I had quite early on had this idea of a kind of a musical elite and a sort of world dominated by a musical elite. Um, and I'd sort of conceived of it and I tried to write it um, you know, I found myself very much trapped in a kind of a third person uh, past tense, quite a sort of plodding earnest kind of recreation I guess of what I thought fiction sort of was meant to sound like and I think probably quite sort of more more YA in terms of the space I was writing in and then I think what kind of ignited the book and sort of made it opened it made it possible was completely felt quite random Um, and it was just basically hearing Simon's voice sort of kind of came out of nowhere kind of surprised me and I I didn't know what you know I I knew that sort of the world that it was emerging out of was um you know, one of restriction and repression and a sort, of, a sort of darkness. But I didn't really know much more about it than that. And so the two, you know, there was something in that voice. It was, um, what was, it was it? alive. It was... In, in some ways we have no idea who he is. Yeah. Partly because he doesn't know who he is at the yeah, beginning of the yeah, novel. Exactly. He has these strange fractured ideas of a, of a past. Mm. And it sounds almost as though there's a correlation between his experience of himself and yeah. a little bit of your experience of him that he's appeared... Utterly, yeah. It was very much... Um, I mean, it was strange because I sort of in some way felt I knew him. He existed outside of me and that sounds like one of those pretentious things that writers say <laughs> and, you know, you want to slap them. But actually, you know, to a certain extent did feel quite true. Like, he had a separate existence. And I think that's what enabled me to write the book because I could sort of... Um, you know, I could allow myself to kind of come to get to know him. But yes, I mean, certainly the plot and the way in which he apprehends reality was a kind of almost a direct mirror of my experience of writing the novel. You know, he, he was trying to work out what was going on, and, and so was I, very much. I was sort of stumbling along in the dark with, with Simon. And so you had no plan, you just follow, you sort of following him, rather as he kind of follows this, this, this rather nice, almost sonar idea in the novel, mm. that he makes his way through London by sort of hearing bouncing songs off, yeah, off the yeah. of Matt, was that so you were feeling your way through in a similar Definitely. I mean, I, I had a kind of a sense of the shape of the novel. I, I guess a sense of the kind of rhythms of revelation of the novel. It's quite poetic, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, <laughs> well done. I guess, you know, there's that sort of the movement, the anagnorisis, you know, the kind of m- movement to awareness that 
I sort of felt that in me somehow, and I knew that that moment of shift when he understands what's going on and then, you know, Lucien reveals himself. I knew these were things were happening, but uh, the way in which the like the revelation was structured, the way in which, you know, the shift between the sort of forward movement of the plot and the backward, uh, the backstory of, you know, the memories, that was, you know, constantly out for grabs, and I was constantly kind of finding my way entirely. Was that the big challenge? I mean, you've, you've written academic prose, you've written poetry. Mm. This is your first novel. What, what was that one? I mean, was that one of the challenges? What, what? Majorly, yeah, actually, okay. yeah. I felt like, you know, I was this apprenticeship. I was like trying to work out how to write a novel, and you know, it sort of set myself quite a challenging, <laughs> was a it challenging a- thing as well. You know, that first-person narrator without uh, memory. <laughs> And yeah. in present tense, you know, in present tense. <laughs> I couldn't even rely on this sort of, you know, that sort of eye of God structure. But I think, you know, that is kind of also what saved the novel for me because what it continually kept it exciting and kind of fresh to write. And wonderful. And I think that sense of mystery that animated it throughout for me, that was, um, you know, because, you know, I tried writing a sort of third-person past tense narrative and it had felt flat, mm. dead on the page. So that... You know, the, the ignorance and the, the kind of mystery of, of Simon's voice was what, and the challenge of actually kind of translating it into some kind of functional plot arc, that was, you know, that was wonderfully motivating. The plot arc takes some of the, the issues that we talked about, the, the, trans, the transcendental power of music to mm. to transport to, to remove you um, to to almost as, as, assume control over you physically mm. into a kind of quasi pseudo quasi pseudo quasi sort of religious structure to a society um, I was wondering if musicians are going to thank you for <laughs> for, t- for the idea of, of a sort of it's not so, so much Big Brother is big, big Yehudi Menuhin, or music is a form of social control. But it's yeah, no, I'm going to be walking around getting slapped by a violinist yeah. wherever I go. But it's, but it's a sort of odd feeling because it's it, every character admits to the to the beauty of, mm. of, of of this idea of one one story of of, of a kind of supreme harmony. Uh, mm. First, I was wondering, is this pure kind of invention? Is this pure sort of poetic license, or are, I mean, are there some sorts of basis in fact for, for sort of sonic sonar oral control the first thing to say is I don't really think I wasn't vilifying music I think okay. it's very much sort of the idea of an abstractable you know a pure purifiable um, art form I think you know this, this sort of that, that extremism is, is, is there that potential for extremism is there I don't think it's inherent to music and I think mm. you know that says far more about my own kind of interest in music than you know any kind of existing tendency in music I suppose um, but in terms of real world uh, <laughs> kind of fact based um, precedents and sort of reasonings for the book I mean yeah I mean infrasound you know the idea of um, the, the carry on was that it was um, kind of generating this, this infrasound which was you know below the human ear but also that acts on the human nervous system so it was sort of and that you know that, that is you know a, a not, you know verifiable phenomenon and, and the idea of sonic weaponry is out there I'm not quite sure to what extent but yeah I think I mentioned um, this this sort of very woo woo kind of internet science article which I stumbled on mm. um, 
in quite the early stages of writing the book about it's called the sonic weapon of Vladimir Gavro. Oh, yeah. It talks about the phenomenon of infrasound and um, that sense of sort of subsonic waves that you know that act on the, the human body, you know, sort of rendering nauseated or um, you know potentially temporarily blind. So there were kind of I was sort of playing with some of these ideas of things which which are you know <laughs> existent in the world, but. Or if you've been to I don't know a big stadium gig or, or to a club where you yeah. see just the way that a piece of music can unite everyone in, in oh, prose. Absolutely, I mean, there's yeah. something there is something there is definitely, curious. Yes, going I think, you on. know, and you know that, that sense of um, in rhythm as well of kind of tapping into something mm. very elemental in us, uniting us, yeah, physically, certainly, yeah. So definitely ideas like that, and I um, I think it, certainly a sort of element in the book was. You know, this probably wasn't at the forefront of my brain, but now looking back, was is, was probably there. It was living in Tokyo and having a, a populace that, in some ways, you know, there is a lot of. It is a relatively controlled society in many ways, but you know, the, there is an oral component as well. So you know, you're on the train, and every station you stop on a certain line, there is a, a jingle that is associated with that train station. <laughs> and then you know, this thing of um, actually, where I was living there was in Itabashi and living next to a park, a kind of a sort of an open square. And every morning, you know, there were these loudspeakers and you'd, you'd hear, you know, a projected sound, song, and then um, instructions. And, you know, it was supposed to group everyone, you know, get everyone together for morning calisthenics. And you'd see this is slightly elderly, <laughs> slightly elderly neighbours going out and doing their morning calisthenics. And there were often sort of company-mandated versions of this as well. So, you know, you'd be walking along and see... You know, like a group of businessmen, salarymen, doing their, their sort of morning physical jerks. Right. <laughs> and this, so, that, so that sort of feeling of music, movement, communal be- bewitchment. Yeah, because I think, you know, there is something very seductive as well about, you know, you mentioned one story as, as you know, and I think what I wanted to show throughout is that it's not a solely malevolent force. There is, yeah. a, there is a desirable thing of, of having our existence ordered in some way and um, again it's that sense of you know, a world cohering around this mm. certain this sort of central centrifugal kind of idea. The pleasure in that you know, of, of things being answered for you and you know, taking the, the, the need to sort of make existential decisions on a daily basis taking it out of it. Yeah, I was reading a, there was an article in The Guardian this week about the, the Bastard and Oscar nominations and saying that films become bent on sort of comforting um, narratives. There's an ambivalence in in the idea of power, beauty, a certain kind of um, mass spell-binding. The problem with it is that there's a reason that we perhaps all are complicit in it, that we want Mm. that kind Mm. of feeling of safety and security. I mean, again, again, is that a sense you you have of, of us? As a definitely, definitely. I mean, I think particularly the West. I mean, that's a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. I think there is something inherent to the way in which we, yeah, think about ourselves in Western culture. That, yeah. I mean, I think there's a um, there's a desire to give up one's, you know, that, that ongoing need to make decisions, and you know, it's a it's a well documented and. But I think we can, you know. See it in ourselves, you know, and as much as I mean, and I think sometimes it's, it's perfectly healthy, you know, mm. you need to see, you know, you need to have, you can't always be at a state of kind of high existential alert and kind of having to, you know, remake the world from the ground up every every day. But yeah, like anything, there has to be a, 
a balance between those those tendencies and those forces and those drives. You know, you you can't um, can't seed that. Well, you mentioned that role. you mentioned mess earlier, and I was thinking is is the is the opposite on some level of, of the kind of order. Um, the seductive, you know, pleasurable order mm. that's, that's offered by one story. The other is, is, is sort of embracing discord, disharmony, disharmony, unharmony, quasi unharmony. But it's embracing mess is another way to, to think. I mean, it's sort of in the problems of being an individual, of, of, of strange relationships, uh, suddenly uh, appearing strange feelings, um, not knowing where your, your life yeah. is going. Yeah, I think it's um, the need to keep the world open for those things I mean I think that tendency to seek a coherent you know sort of a simple sort of way through is, is very human but I think as much as possible to allow to allow ver- to different versions and to allow kind of a um, different voices in is seems to me imperative Can I ask a personal question I mean, how does this relate to, to you and your, your character and maybe your life in, in, in the time that you're Writing. Are you yeah. a, the sort of person that can can cope with mess? Is this, is this a... <laughs> um, yes and no? I mean, I think I am not going to sort of melt down and shut down. But I, I mean, I think it's diff- difficult, isn't it? Because there's 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 a spectrum there. There's there's mess. There's chaos. There's order. There's harmony. You know, there, there's, and, and there's sort of like OCD. You know, <laughs> you know, or repressive regime. You know, there's there's a whole kind of a variety mm. of different. And I think there's nothing wrong with seeking pattern and seeking. Um, uh, order and seeking, um, and again, you know, seeking narrative, seeking a way to understand. And that's a very, very human thing. I think, you know, my life certainly <laughs> do try and, you know, cope with the, you know, the sort of massive information that's coming at you on a daily basis by sort of finding a way through it. So yeah, I mean, I try and vacuum <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> but yeah, as you know, with a with a um, young child, there's definitely an element of, of chaos there. But you know, and I think you know, you've got to allow that allow time for that as well. And I suppose a child is, is another way of saying a new narrative yeah, imposed on a... Yeah, exactly, on a... and you can't, you can't control that. You've got to listen and, and, and be open to it. I began the novel in, in England, mm-hmm. and you, you and your husband returned to New Zealand... Mm. Was, was there a way that the novel was helping you understand that? As a, a tra- so you're, you're, you're returning home, you're leaving a, a place that you've, you've... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Sorry, I didn't let you finish. Was no, no. I think there was something deeper coming back. <laughs> we'll always want to know what it was. I think, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that's really what the book is about. And I think I've been thinking about this, actually, as sort of a, a kind of a... the trope of memory loss and kind of the idea of mnemonic, you know, prosthetic memory that you somehow take with you. And I'm sort of thinking there's got to be at some point, there's got to be some connection back with the idea of actually, yeah, for, like leaving home. Because mm. when you leave home or go to a new country, you, you leave behind the structures that sort of support memory, you know, the physical structures. So your, you know, your house and your belongings and your possessions. And, you know, that, that, that is always a rupture. And I think it does always make you kind of re-question things, re- your identity and, you know, I, I find moving house quite traumatic, you know, seeing, <laughs> seeing all of your physical stuff, you know, suddenly it's like, who am I? <laughs> you know, all these props that tell you and show you who you are. And I think that, that experience is definitely, was sort of underlying writing the book, that idea of moving and 
Because Simon, in the novel, the only way he can access his past is mm. through these, these sort of objects. Yeah, exactly. Was that also the case, I mean, with people too? I mean, he's trying to access this relationship with his, his family when you left New Zealand. Was, mm. was there a similar sense of, I mean, you're leaving your family, you're leaving friends? That's quite, that's yeah. a, quite a rupture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, I'd left home quite young and had left the country a sort of a few years before coming to England. But, yeah, there's a sense in which you're always rewriting a version of yourself and sort of looking back and seeking some kind of line through that experience. And, yeah, yeah, you do, you do sort of feel the loss of the physical presence, um, you know, the, that structure that kind of reminds you of who you are and, and what your story is. How is it to ret- return to it after? So you've been in Japan, you've been in, in London. What's it like mm. to return... To return home. Um, it's it's wonderful actually. It's 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 um, it's been a really good experience. Um, I've returned to Wellington, which is not the city I grew up in, so it's a slightly um, sort of adjacent experience. I mean, and you know, you're continually having to kind of forge a new direction. It's not as if you can kind of come back and suddenly you know you've kind of reached this nice sort of circular ending or anything. <laughs> God forbid. But it's been it's been good, and I think having the distance from London in a way has sort of enabled and freed me to write to finish the book and to write that it's it's um yeah it's it's definitely good to be home one of the things that's happened to new zealand in the interim is, mm. is you have a book of winner you uh, uh, yes yeah our second i should point out your second book yes, winner yes yeah. the first book winner Kerry hume oh. <laughs> The Bone People. Come on, James. Yeah, right. She's next up on your podcast uh, list. Yeah. Oh, God, I feel terrible. Um, yeah. Don't, don't. Um, I was wondering, is it a, what, what has Catton's victory in the, in the book of done for some contemporary New Zealand writers? I mean, in, in one sense, it's caused us, from what I gather, it's caused mm. a bit of a storm in, in New Zealand. Or she, a recent she, storm, yeah, yeah. That she's been accused of all sorts of things about um, being too successful, uh, biting the hands <laughs> that apparently f- f- feed her, um, not being positive enough about us, mm. literary culture, mm. artistic culture in New Zealand. Yeah, there's a bit of a storm in the teacup, really. I think, I think most, most writers, most, most people I know would obviously, you know, hugely support and encourage her sort of her right and you know, responsibility to talk out about... New Zealand, contemporary New Zealand political, sort of the political ethos in New Zealand, and I think there is, you know, a sense in which the, the contemporary government, the national government, so you know, not dissimilar to the current UK government, um, is is you know restricting, you know, funding and support for, for the arts and humanities. You know, this is, this is part of that, you know, that narrative. It's interesting because the things that she was saying about her reluctance to be an ambassador, you know, and her sense that you know, New Zealanders are sort of trying to own her and sort of to sort of possess, I suppose, her success as a reflection on them was was very much played out. You know, sort of it was evidenced by the immediate kind of reaction to her comments, and everybody was like shocked that she would, you know, that she would think to to say, to say these things. And I think, you know, I don't, I can't possibly know what it, her experience has been. She's had this hugely intense, um, you know, moment, and you know, huge. Sort of groundswell of interest and sort of you know obsessed interest in her work and um, I yeah I can't say what her you know her own experience in New Zealand has been like I mean I personally wouldn't say that 
the, the, tall, the tall poppy syndrome, which is what we talk about, this, this sort of sense of having to cut people down size. I've never personally given that much credence, I think. Mm. Um, I think, you know, if anything, New Zealanders are very keen to kind of recognise and kind of laud, you know, our people have done really well and, you know, mm. sort of take that. But, you know, I think New Zealand, contemporary New Zealand is a fairly nuanced, kind of aware society and I don't think terribly many people would, you know, have... have Attempted to, you know, I don't think that the backlash was maybe quite as as, as present, you know, in a cross section of New Zealand society. Anyway, it's interesting because I think, you know, there is possibly a greater awareness of, of New Zealand as a kind of a <laughs> as a place on the literary sort of in the literary scheme of things. And you know, I think originally a lot of the you know the sort of sense of excitement about the win was, oh, this is going to put us on the map a bit more, and um, maybe this can have some kind of trickle down effect for New Zealand writers. I don't know, and it's hard to say whether that will be the case. I think there's probably a certain amount of... I think the awareness has probably increased somewhat. But I think it's, it's still very hard to get... And I, you know, I was incredibly lucky to be published in the UK. But the book I've written is actually it's a UK book. It was a natural kind of step for me to to approach a, so a UK agent. In, yeah, I, mean, I think that's the question. I think that's, that's what we'll, we'll have to sort of measure and take stock of is... If a book is written in New Zealand, is that significantly? Is that going to allow it to have a, a commercial release in an in a international spectrum, or does that mean that it is only a New Zealand book? And you know, what are the requirements for a book to sort of translate into a into a world audience? Is there a kind of a new kind of parochialism that we're still kind of really having to combat? And I think you know that's it's still being answered and will continue to be answered. You know, because we have lost a great number of the bigger. Um, commercial imprints from New Zealand so Hachette used to have New Zealand um, and is now relocated to Australia so we've lost you know there are a limited number of places in which you can publish so there's even a worry that a New Zealand would a New Zealand story get out yeah I think so I think so because even then you've got you know um, huge huge restrictions on you know commercial kind of feasibility of just publishing to a New Zealand audience and there are you know there are presses like Victoria University Press who publish the luminaries who are doing amazing work but you know they're existing in a in a very sort of toehold, really, because you know they're supported by the university, and you know, and this has changed. This has sort of diminished, I think, probably in the last ten years. So that's that's something that's of concern. I, I don't know how much the cat and win will change that. But it's a fascinating question. Yeah, I think because so. Because the think kinds of stories that will be written are directly yes. connected to ideas of commerce and... and yes, exactly, and how will it shape what's being written and, and will it mean that, yeah, that the New Zealand, like, the ability to write a story that actually speaks to New Zealanders. And I think, you know, particularly interesting things like children's literature, are those stories still going to be published? And Because, you know, there was a sort of a heyday in which, you know, you know, I grew up reading books about New Zealand kids and, you know, Morris G, um, Joan de Hamill, you know, which were published by mainstream Mm. and if that's still going to be a possibility or if you know, those books will no longer kind of emerge. I mean, it's, uh, you've been very generous with time. I'm aware <laughs> that you're probably still really in New Zealand. Um, an interesting question about it is you live with a, a novelist. Your, your, your husband, Carl Shook, is mm. a, 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 a very respected, prize-winning uh, novelist. Are these the sorts of questions that, that sort of get regularly chewed over over the morning (laughs) and what's it like the two of you now uh, Um, both being published it's it's really great I mean less than you'd think do we talk about these sort of commercial realities I think this is something that kind of happens almost sort of in the wake of finishing a book and sort of from time to time evaluating the temperature and things like that but no I mean I think one of the amazing and you know 
incredibly lucky to live with a novelist because the things that really keep me going, I mean, these thoughts don't really come into play. Sure. They, when you're actually working, the, the thing you're thinking about is the work and it can only really be that, otherwise you would be insane and you also wouldn't want to keep it going. And that, that relationship is, you know, is so invaluable. I've, you know, I don't think I would have finished the book if I hadn't you know, had Carl's support and um, encouragement and just vision, essentially. I see a large, only me, a large yeah. full stop. Can I just yes. literally just finish the um, <laughs> the last th- thirty-two seconds? Thirty-two seconds. Thirty-two seconds, Charlie. A final, a final mm. question: Is the full stop as as or the, is the gear team? Is it gear team? Yeah, I think, I think you can say that. Is it um, carry-on or carillon? What is the next? What, what next? Um, I've got a, a book that I've actually, like the idea of it hit me when I was writing The Chimes. And it's sort of one of those things where you, you sort of don't want to betray the novel you're working on, and, but you've got this very sort of exciting, seductive idea Sparkly that you want. You. Yeah, it's you. They've got none of the sort of the, the drawbacks of commitment. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's a novel. It's likely set in Japan, um, oh. in Tokyo, and... I see a kind of an element of a sort of supernatural undercurrent, a sort of a, a near the world, uh, potentially a, a fairy world, um, still very much in, in shaping stages, and no overt musical element, <laughs> I should say, although, um, I, I, yeah, this is probably going further than I should, but um, Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, is, is there as some... Um, yeah, Will you feel more confident? Do you think the second time right? Do you already have a sense of having learned a lot with with your first novel? Yes and no. I mean, I think definitely this was such an apprenticeship, and just really kind of I learned so much just even editing the novel with with my editor. Um, so yes, I mean, I think you you have gained some sort of practical skills that will make it easier. But I think the actual act of starting a new book is you know you sort of back at the beginning. <laughs> Well, I think on that note, thank you so much for your time no, and for you. battling. Uh, was this your, this your fourth place in the last, fourth different location in the last 24 hours?